Welcome to the podcast for the March 2021 issue for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden. I'm professor and head of kinesiology and nutrition at the University of Illinois at Chicago and uh, editor-in-chief of JPEN. I'm really pleased today to be able to welcome my guest, Dr. Paul Wishmeyer, who's professor of anesthesiology and surgery and director of the TPN and nutrition team at Duke University School of Medicine. The paper we're going to talk about is post-operative utilization of oral nutrition supplements in surgical patients in U.S. hospitals. Welcome, Dr. Wishmeyer. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be talking with you about this today. I'm pleased to be able to talk about this paper too. We know that post-surgery, uh, our patients are at such nutrition risk and, and that's those who come in well-nourished. Many of them are coming in already nourished and then have that period of risk afterwards. And we know they aren't being identified. You went into this large premier healthcare database and looked at this issue. Tell us a bit about what you did. We had this really exciting opportunity to work with an outstanding group of health outcome scientists who do large databases in our CAPER research group in Duke Anesthesiology. Um, some of the authors you see there, Vijay Krishnamuthi and, and Karthik uh, Ragmuthian uh, are outstanding at this. And then Tetsu Ohuma, who's been here from Japan, they are really exceptional statisticians and, and they just love to study great questions and they, they don't really care what the question is. And of course, you and I are both very passionate about nutrition. And so it's great to have people that are willing to take on our, our nutrition cause. And so we had an opportunity to look at 10 million surgical patients across the US, which was really exciting and look at the use of oral nutrition supplements. And we wanted to ask two simple questions. One, how much are our nutrition supplements being used in the US over the time period that we studied? And, and then how much is malnutrition actually being coded for in surgical patients over the time period that we studied? And is it getting better? We're getting better coding for malnutrition, at least in these data sources or, or not. And, and are we getting better giving our nutrition supplements or not? And, and that was the fundamental premise we went into looking for. I, I'm really intrigued by these large database questions. You were able to look at 2,823,532 surgical encounters across 172 hospitals. That's amazing. Tell us about these surgical encounters. Uh, are they being diagnosed with malnutrition? Are we intervening with ONS or other methods? I think I'm going to start with the malnutrition question because I think it all starts with diagnosis, right? And unfortunately, um, all the RDs out in the audience will know that we're not great at getting our physicians and, and others to actually code officially in the chart for the malnutrition that the RDs are diagnosing. Unfortunately, it was not reaching the code status. We, we're not coding for malnutrition. Uh, you know, I, I, I think in reviews, um, some of the reviews, I think were dietitians said, Remember that the patients were probably being diagnosed, but they weren't being coded for it. So we were really careful to say, this is coded malnutrition that a physician was signing in the chart and a, and a coder was coding. But that's really important, right? That's what really drives, you know, how malnutrition is graded as important or not is, is how much it's diagnosed in many cases. And so we really were in our, our malnutrition rates in 2008, when we started the study were coded malnutrition rates were 4.4%. And they increased a little bit, a little bit to 5.2% during the study period, which ended in 2014. And so I, I think that was shocking. And then we looked at some key surgical subtypes, which I think is important because clearly certain surgeries have a much higher malnutrition rate than others. Colorectal surgery, which is, is a major target for, for malnutrition. You know, there's data out there that lists 
the average person coming for colorectal surgery, when, when you have a dietitian diagnosing them, will have a malnutrition rate somewhere between 50 and 60%. So one in two or even two in three patients coming for these surgeries are, are malnourished when you've, you've got a trained dietitian doing it. But we, our coded rate in the 2 million patients we looked at was somewhere between 9% when we started and 11% when we finished. So again, probably one in five to one in six patients are ever actually being coded that are actually malnourished. And then for other surgeries, for cabbage, you know, it's much lower. It was at 2%, although clearly that's probably not the actual rate by any means. And then our overall rate, again, was about 5%. And we, we think somewhere between 30 and 50% is the actual rate in, in surgical patients. So again, we're getting maybe one in five, one in six patients that are actually being coded for their malnutrition. So that was maybe not an unexpected shock, but I didn't think it would be that dramatic, the differences we would see. It is so disappointing, isn't it? You know, we, we know near 50 years ago, Butterworth's uh, discussion of the importance of this, but certainly for the last 12 years amongst the nutrition community, we have been trying to emphasize the need to identify these patients, you know, screen everybody, make sure that they're getting assessed for nutrition risk or malnutrition, and then intervening. And here you find these data still showing, you know, such poor rates of diagnosis, similar to uh, the paper I'm thinking of from Mark Corkins uh, and colleagues showing about a nine to 10% coding rate for malnutrition too. If a dietitian were to have diagnosed the patient as malnourished and intervened, we wouldn't necessarily know that, right? Because it may not have been coded for by the physician. So if that were the case and the patient were given ONS, Mm-hmm. It should have been picked up on the ONS delivery, right? And that doesn't seem to have been the case. It's not like there's a big gap there. No, and I think you're, you're exactly right. I think um, we had hoped the same. We had hoped that, you know, that ONS use would perhaps better reflect who actually was, was getting diagnosed and maybe that would give us a better target to go by. But the reality was, it really didn't. It was unfortunate. Only 15% of malnourished patients um, of these almost 3 million patients were getting ONS, right? This is not all comer surgery patients. These are the ones that, that are malnourished even. They're still not getting it. Not only are we not diagnosing it well, but even in the patients we are diagnosing it in, a very small fraction of them are, are getting oral nutrition supplements, which, which we know improve outcome in, in so many ways. We have such rich data for that topic. And I think that's something we probably as a specialty have to work on both implementation and better research, I suppose, too. But I think the most challenging thing we saw was that the use of ONS over time went down. It was 22% of malnourished patients in 2009, and it went down to just under 12%, 11.8% in 2014. That was a little concerning to us as well. The overall use of, of ONS was somewhere between 1% and 2%. It actually went down as well. It went down from 2% to 1% um, from 2009 to 2014 in the population as a whole. Either way you look at it, that's a huge reduction. What, what do you think is causing a reduced use um, when you know, we're trying to make the point that these people need the intervention? That is an excellent question that I, I have had, I have struggled with. I, you know, I, I feel like we have tried to really push awareness of, of malnutrition, especially in surgery. The American Society for Enhanced Recovery, we published surgical guidelines recently. The ESPEN Society has published surgical guidelines trying to advocate for the importance of optimizing nutrition in the, in the perioperative period. 
I don't know. You know, one thing I, I will caveat all this data with saying is not all hospitals code for ONS. And so that isn't the explanation for this data entirely, because we, if we actually, in our methods, we went through and if a hospital didn't code for ONS within a certain number of month period, if they didn't code for any, like if, sometimes they include it with the, the food charges instead of actually coding for it individually, we pulled that hospital out of the analysis. So that is why you only see of the potential 10 million eligible patients, you only see 3 million that we actually analyzed because we wanted to ensure there was regular and consistent coding for oral nutrition supplements within the hospitals that we were analyzing data from. So I guess one, one thing that comes into our mind is, you know, maybe there's hospitals out there that are using it more that just aren't coding for it that we're losing. But what we can say is the 172 hospitals and the 3 million patients we did look at, those hospitals were consistently coding for ONS and were using less of it over time. And, and I don't I don't know why that is. That's interesting and, and disturbing. Uh, the other thing I noticed in your data was that the patients that were being prescribed ONS, and we can only say being prescribed because we don't know if they consumed it too in a database study like this, right? Uh, they were more severely ill and had more comorbidities. So it seems that those patients that are the sickest seem to be the ones that their team is providing the ONS to. But there's that whole middle group of patients that may have a much better prognosis that's falling by the wayside. You know, it goes back to a survey I did with a medical student when I was at University of Colorado, where we surveyed all of the chairs or the division chiefs of the colorectal and surgical oncology programs in the US. And he got a, quite a good response rate. And all of them, we asked them a bunch of questions around perioperative nutrition and, and if they thought it was important, if they thought it improved outcomes, if they believed the data for it. And 75 to 85% of the, these leading surgeons who train the future of our specialties in those specialties all said, yeah, nutrition clearly is important. It clearly, when we do it right, improves outcome on our patients. We believe the data says it improves outcomes, but then, somewhere between 10 and 20% of them only said, well, we don't actually know how to do it. So a very small percentage actually knew what to do or, or, or understood the data well enough to, to know how to do it. And I think what that speaks to is we need pathways. Um, and, and that's one of the things we published a paper recently in JPEN about RD driven, our, our dietitian driven perioperative nutrition clinic where we have a structured pathway with an RD that sits in our pre-op clinic and we have a PON score we develop, which is sort of a derivation of, of other existing scores, obviously that has weight loss and albumin and some other things in it. Um, and if they score any points, they're at risk and they, they get referred to the RD. And then we have a structured pathway that can start even months before surgery where we use a high protein ONS and then we use an immune nutrition supplement for a week before surgery. And then you do an immune nutrition supplement for a week after and we do a high protein ONS for a month after that. And so I think the need for structured pathways based on data is something that could change this. And there aren't many out there we're finding and most centers don't use them. And I think that's one thing we, we targeted as something that we could improve at least to maybe make this data look better in a few years. I completely agree with you there. I published uh, in 2013 a paper with an interdisciplinary paper with physicians, dietitians, nurses, and we proposed specific algorithms and pathways where there were automatic triggers that came up uh, when, when certain metrics were made 
these things weren't overlooked to our colleagues who are not thinking about nutrition on a daily basis like we are. I think we need to continue. You know, a decade later, it seems like there's still a lot of work for us to do. One final question. Do you have any outcomes data related to any of the database? We do. We, we have done a number of papers since this one where we have specifically looked at outcomes from ONS in colorectal surgery in hip fracture surgery, and we, we've begun to look at some other populations as well. And we saw definite clinical outcome improvements in colorectal surgery patients, and we, we published that in perioperative medicine um, just in the last few months, actually. Today, it officially came out, actually, um, in the British Journal of Anesthesia that uh, the use of ONS after hip fracture surgery reduced length of stay. Um, and that's data drawn, drawn from this same database where we did some really rigorous matching of people who got ONS after surgery and people who didn't and, and did some really rigorous matching of those patients and saw these, these benefits. So the data does bear out benefits in a number of the surgical populations we've looked at so far if these ONS supplements are used postoperatively, the unfortunate part of this database is we can't see the preoperative period. We don't see outpatient data. So we only know about the use of the ONS in the hospital after the surgery. Um, but we can say postoperative supplements in these surgical subtypes lead to clinical outcome benefits. And, and this year in large clinical populations. So we, we're encouraged, but we still think more clinical trials continue to need to be done. I, you know, we have this rich immune nutrition literature, but I think the high protein supplements also for longer periods of time before and after is something that deserves more research. And we're doing some here at Duke as well. That's really great uh, coming out today. Where did you say that that's published just for me and others who want to see it? It's in the British Journal of Anesthesiology. Um, and it's the same authors essentially as this paper. David Williams is, is the first author. And then our CAPER group did the work. And, you know, I, I have to say one of the greatest parts of being at Duke, other than the amazing RD team I work with for sure, and the, the pharmacists, is I, I've really been blessed to have two really outstanding young physician scientists who are now on the TPN team and are committed to a career in nutrition research. And I, I you know, there, there's few and far between, Kelly, as you know, we've talked about this for years. And I have these two amazing young people, David Williams and Krista Haynes. David, as an anesthesiologist, his, his interest obviously is in perioperative nutrition and these pathways in ONS use in the perioperative setting. And Krista's interest is in parental nutrition and surgery and trauma. And so she's worked on these papers too and in diagnosing malnutrition in those patients. She's a critical care surgeon. They are authors on it as well. And, and so, you know, we, we've really been blessed. And, and I, I do have to say thanks. Abbott has generously, we, we came to them with this project and said, could you help support the statistical analysis? And um, for those of you who know Rafat Aghazi, he was an NIH-funded scientist at University of Pittsburgh. I'm sure you know him, Kelly. Oh, it's fabulous. He's fabulous. And, and so he's been a really great advocate and, and academic mind for this research. And then uh, Suela Sulo is a health economist who you know, worked on a lot of Abbott's studies as well. I, I bet you know Suela as well. She's an outstanding health economist. And, and Bridget Cassidy is their PhD RD you know, who works I, I think one of the joys of what industry in our field has, has done is they're really recruiting these outstanding academic minds to do real science. And, and the folks in our CAPER group, the physicians who've never worked with industry folks like this said, it's amazing to work with folks in industry who are smarter than we are in many ways and know just as much as we do and are real academic minds. It's, I think many of our industry groups have these sorts of people in their, in their cadre. And so they're outstanding people to do these kinds of research with. And they can bring forth some funding to, 
to fund our ideas to study these big questions. Sure, and, and they're so critical. The interesting thing about you know this and other projects that these same colleagues have worked on is by shining a light on this issue, of course, they are working for a company that produces oral nutrition supplements, but so are their competitors, right? So, so they're addressing the issue of malnutrition in our patients and, and the poor outcomes associated with that. Thank you so much for taking the time to share this work with us today. Uh, for our readers, please do go to the March 2021 issue of JPEN and look at the paper that Dr. Wishmeyer and I have just discussed entitled Postoperative Utilization of Oral Nutrition Supplements in Surgical Patients in the U.S. Hospitals. Thanks very much, Dr. Wishmeyer. Thanks, Kelly. Great talking to you and, and thanks everyone.